Hey, everybody. Welcome to episode 140 of Reclaiming the Faith. Today, my wife and I are going to get into what Paul meant when he wrote, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. It's a powerful passage. If you're blessed by this episode, please consider leaving a positive rating and review on my Apple podcast channel, Reclaiming the Faith. And you can find links to all of my resources at philsbaker.com. Speaking of, I'm about to release a new album called Dusk and Dawn with 15 songs this Friday, October 28th. So please go check that out. Uh, Leave a rating and review if you're blessed by it. And also check out a lyric video made by my brother Mike Stibbs uh, for track nine called All My Future. That'll be this Thursday on my YouTube channel. So yeah, please go check that out. All right, I'm blessed to be a part of Omega Frequency along with BDK. You can find everything we do on our YouTube channel, Omega Frequency Live, or go check out his website, omegafrequency.com. Oh, and uh, if you get to stick around to the end of the episode, you'll get to hear track 10 off the album called 86 Years about the martyrdom of Polycarp. And this song really highlights the theme of our passage today where Paul says, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. All right, well, without any further ado, let's get into episode 140. We're going to go ahead and get rolling, getting into Philippians chapter 1. This week, we're going to look at the last uh, sentence of of verse 18 and then go through verse 21. So if you got a Bible, open it up to Philippians chapter 1. For a little bit of context, even though we're doing mostly 19 through 21 tonight, I wanted to give um, a little bit more context starting in verse 12 because you're going to see some similar phrases uh, in verse 12 and in verse 19 that I think are really important for us to kind of help uh, put things in a nice little package. So, so it says, Now I want you to know, brethren, that my circumstances have turned out for the greater progress of the gospel. And what were his circumstances? Well, he's imprisoned in Rome for the gospel. And so verse 13, so that my imprisonment in the cause of Christ has become well known throughout the whole praetorian guard and to everyone else. And that most of the brethren trusting in the Lord because of my imprisonment have far more courage to speak the word of God without fear. Some, to be sure, are preaching Christ even from envy and strife, but some also from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am appointed for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition rather than from from pure motives, thinking to cause me distress in my imprisonment. Well, what then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed. And in this I rejoice. All right, starting up for this week. Yes, and I will rejoice. For I know that this will turn out for my deliverance through your prayers and the provision of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, according to my earnest expectation and hope that I will not be put to shame in anything, but that with all boldness, Christ will even now, as always, be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. For me, For to me, rather, to live is Christ and to die is gain. So I just wanted to give, uh, start in verse 12 to show this, um, this oh, I'm sorry. Can you answer what the Praetorian Guard was? Well, there are different Praetorian Guards. Sorry, I'll put that up. Sorry, Cindy. Um, There are different Praetorian Guards um, in in various places. The one that Uh, Paul is referring to here most likely is the main praetorian guard, the main special guard for uh, Caesar in Rome. That's probably what he's talking about. So you can see in verse 12, he says that my circumstances have turned out for the progress of the gospel. 
And in verse 19, he says that he's rejoicing because he knows that this will turn out for my deliverance. So I just want to make that little uh, parallel first to show that there are themes that kind of circulate in Scripture. And while we do a lot of these word study things, it's good to see the flow of Scripture so you can see certain themes that get repeated. And when you do that, you know the writer is is uh, trying to bring you back to something that happened earlier because there's a there's a ten, there's a connection there. Yeah, Lanisha says to live is Christ and to die is gain. Yes, yep, and that's where we're going to close tonight. It's going to be a, a really good. This is such a great passage. So let's dive in to. We'll start at the end of verse eighteen. Yes, and I will rejoice. So he's saying in verse 18, that he is rejoicing that Christ is being proclaimed, whether in sincerity or in pretense, Christ is being proclaimed. And in this, I rejoice. So he is rejoicing. And he says, and I'm not just going to rejoice right now. I'm going to continue rejoicing because I know that this will turn out for my deliverance this will turn out for my deliverance. I'm going to rejoice because this will turn out for my deliverance. Well, he, um, this, this word deliverance does not necessarily mean um, getting out of jail. All right. So I'm going to highlight again, the, uh, the notes here. So you can see this word soteria comes from sozo, which means to save or rescue. It's most frequently translated as salvation in the Bible. But is Paul talking about that his imprisonment is going to turn out for his salvation in terms of like going to be with Jesus? Or is he saying that he's going to be delivered out of prison? Yes. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. So um, let's let's kind of look at this. Uh, we'll, we'll look at it kind of. We'll answer the question by looking at the next few words uh, and getting into getting into this. So he says, "This is going to turn out for my deliverance through your prayers and the provision of Jesus Christ." So this word prayers is um, supplication. It's a word that was used earlier. Uh, you see a want in, a need in someone, and you have this heartfelt compassion rising out of you to uh, implore God to meet that need. All right. So through your prayers and the provision of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, what's happening to Paul is going to turn out for his deliverance. And it's interesting if you're thinking about prayer. What role does prayer play in your salvation? I mean, that's kind of interesting, right? Paul is saying that prayer is very important for this deliverance or salvation thing happening. It's not just prayer, though. It's the provision of the Spirit of Jesus Christ. Now, this is most likely um, just a way of Paul describing the Holy Spirit, that the Holy Spirit is the Spirit of Jesus Christ in a sense. And you can see a connection to that back in Acts chapter 16, that the Holy Spirit and the Spirit of Jesus um, help kind of shepherd Paul to go to Philippi in the first place because he wanted to go to Asia Minor, you know, close to where like Pergamum and Ephesus and uh, Laodicea are. But God used increasing measures basically to get him to come to Macedonia, eventually sending him a vision of a man from Macedonia pleading for Paul and Silas and Timothy to come there and, and Luke. And so they do. Um, so it's interesting that the spirit of Jesus was kind of bringing Paul to Philippi for a few people's deliverance in a, in a sense, for the deliverance of Lydia uh, and her family, for the deliverance of the jailer and his family. And so that's the, the spirit of Jesus was doing that. But prayer is also very important too, to Paul. And it's interesting that he's kind of um, uh, in a roundabout way saying that he's requesting their prayer. He's basically saying, y'all are praying for me, right? 
because it's going to be through your prayers and the help of the Holy Spirit that I'm going to experience this deliverance. Uh, it, I just find it really cool that Paul will ask for prayer. Yeah. And you know, this is a guy that we look to as like super apostle. Hey, Jen, good to see you. Glad you're hanging out with us tonight. But it, even though this guy is exhibiting basically every spiritual gift um, that we see written about in the New Testament, he still really understands his need of prayer. Yeah. I mean, I think that's that's probably why he... Um is, you know, showing so many fruits of the Spirit is because he has people actively praying for him and he's humble enough to ask for prayer and all of that. So I think that's why God chooses to use him. This is, you know, he's, I wouldn't always describe Paul as humble because sometimes he comes across a little bit brash, but in general, he's very, very humble and his approach toward ministry. Mm. So, Yeah, I, I want to highlight one of the prayers that he he requests um, in Ephesians chapter six, starting in verse uh, 18. Now, you know, the context of Ephesians six, he's been talking about spiritual warfare, basically, and um, putting on the helmet of salvation, the breastplate of righteousness, right? The belt of truth, uh, shoes prepared for the gospel of peace, the sword of the spirit, shield of faith. That's not in the correct order, but these are all things that we need to take up because our battle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, the powers, the principalities, the spiritual forces of wickedness, right? So concluding that those, uh, those challenges to the uh, Ephesians to fight spiritual uh, battles with spiritual weapons, Paul says this in verse 18, with all prayer, with all prayer and petition, pray at all times, with all prayer, pray at all times in the spirit. And with this in view, be on alert with all perseverance and petition for all the saints. A lot of alls in there. He's like, you need to be doing this all the time with all of y'all together. All of you guys need to be doing this all the time with all petition and perseverance. And he says, and pray on my behalf that utterance may be given to me in the opening of my mouth to make known with boldness the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains that in proclaiming it, I may speak boldly as I ought to speak. I just found this really interesting because like in Philippians 1 and 19, he's saying that uh, he needs their prayer and the provision of of the spirit of Jesus Christ. And in Ephesians chapter six, he says, I need you to pray for me that utterance may be given me in the opening of my mouth. Who's gonna give Paul the words? God. Right. Mm -hmm. But he's not just depending on God. He's saying, no, God wants to use these people to pray. If they don't pray, uh, it yeah, may, not, it may ha- not happen, yeah. God and people, his church, his bride, working together to give this apostle who's in chains the words to speak and the boldness to speak them as he should. Mm-hmm. It's just a really cool passage in Ephesians 6, 6 showing um, the, the, uh, the work of God, God's divine and sovereign work, but relying on human participation to accomplish his mission. Yeah. I mean, our, our God's very relational, right? So, you know, it's not that, I mean, by praying, we're not, there's, we're not physically doing anything. We are acknowledging God's power and we're asking for God's assistance and we are, you know, worshiping God in that, but we're not doing anything. I mean, on, from the outsiders looking in, right. We're just saying words. But that's what it looks like. That's yeah. what it looks like. Yeah, outside looking in. Mm. But God, like thoughts and prayers, like just just thoughts. Yeah. Well wishes. <laughs> yeah, I mean, like it's it to the outside world. That's what it seems like. But yeah. God is so relational that He chooses to make that a part of of His divine work. You know, so that we can say, okay, what I do and what I 
say and if I choose to pray or not, it it does matter because mm. God hears our prayers and God cares deeply and and not always our our prayers obviously and aren't always answered like God gave us what we wanted, but sometimes that God changed our hearts and that was as much a part of the process as anything. So yeah, it was making me think of James chapter five, where it talks about the power of prayer. Like Elijah was a man just like us, but he prayed, mm-hmm. right? The prayer of the righteous man avails much. Elijah was a man just like us, but he prayed. Mm-hmm. And it didn't rain for several years, and then it did rain. And if you remember that prayer um, from Elijah, uh, this is the first Kings 18. Uh, he's this is after that great victory over the prophets of Baal. And he just like gets down on his knees and just kind of like in a ball almost. And he's just pleading with God for it to rain. And he sends his servant. And he's like, is it raining yet? Is it raining yet? And he's like, I don't see anything. And he keeps on doing this over and over. And finally, there's just this little speck on the horizon. And he just takes off running. So it's just like this, he's just imploring God, these people need rain. Right. And the lack of rain is causing a temptation for, for many people to reject their devotion to Yahweh and to call on the false storm God, Baal. And um, the, think of the blessing that was given these people when it started to rain again. I mean, the hope, the joy that would come to so many um, from that prayer. In a sense, delivering them out of that time of famine. Right. Um, so I wanted to highlight just a couple of passages. One where you see uh, prayer leading to someone's um, physical deliverance, physical salvation, and then one leading to someone's Uh, spiritual deliverance or salvation. These are both from the book of Acts. And so these would probably already be in in Paul's, uh, one of them for sure would be in Paul's mind, but almost certainly the other as well, since it's a very, very um, popular story and powerful story. So putting this back up on the screen, Acts chapter 12. Now at that time, Herod the king laid hands on some who belonged to the church in order to mistreat them. And he had James, the brother of John, put to death with a sword. When he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. Now it was during the days of unleavened bread. So right around the time that Jesus was killed, was murdered. When he had seized him, he put him in prison delivering him to four squads of soldiers to guard him, intending after the Passover to bring him out before the people. So Peter was kept in prison, but prayer for him was being made fervently by the church to God. And if you know the rest of the story, you know that an angel walked right into the prison unnoticed, And wakes Peter, his chains fall off. Peter thinks he's seeing a vision. So he's just following the angel around. You know, the guards have no idea what's going on. I mean, that's just, yeah, man. (laughs) And he just walks right out. And as he gets through the the, uh, gate of the city, he realizes this was not a vision. (laughs) He goes to the door. Uh, where the church is and Rhoda, the servant girl is there and she's just like overjoyed. She runs in and tells the brothers and sisters that Peter's here. Peter's there. And they're like, nah, it's just his angel. And she's like, no, he's there. And they come and see him. I mean, that, oh my goodness. Yeah. I can't imagine. No, that's, that's insane. And I think we've, you know, we've talked before about, uh, about that passage and just how, I mean, God, he doesn't just, he didn't stop doing that though then. You know, obviously we, we've heard stories and we've seen things that have happened current day that are like mm-hmm. that. But yeah, it's still incredible that, you know, there are times and sometimes, you know, with with Peter, I think that him thinking he was dreaming basically yeah. was 
probably made him less fearful. Right. He wasn't, he's not going to be worried about what's around him, but yeah. that's a terrifying but amazing thing to go through. Yeah. So. All right. So that was a, um, that was a story of prayer bringing the physical deliverance of someone. And let's look at a little bit different one, prayer bring, bringing spiritual deliverance. All right. So this is one we've covered before, but it's, it's just really neat. Um, so this is Paul in Philippi with Silas. And this is after they've been um, beaten and put into the stocks for professing the gospel to the culture in Philippi. But at, sorry, but about midnight, right up here. But about midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns of praise to God. And the prisoners were listening to them. It's just, I mean, that's just a really neat little insertion by Luke that they're listening. You know, they're watching, they're listening. And Paul, Silas knew this, you know, they know they're, they're being watched, they're being listened to. And we're being watched and we're being listened to. And what are people seeing? Mm. It was Christ being exalted in our body. Whether we're free um, or whether we're being thrown into quarantine, you know, or something far worse. But people are listening to Paul and Silas, certainly the jailer. And suddenly there came a great earthquake so that the foundations of the prison house were shaken. And immediately all the doors were opened and everyone's chains were unfastened. When the jailer awoke and saw the prison doors opened, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners had escaped because that would be his punishment. He would be killed. So he's like, I'm not going to let them kill me. I'm going to do it myself. But Paul cried out with a loud voice saying, do not harm yourself for we are all here. And he called for lights, the jailer did, and rushed in. And with trembling, with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. And after he brought them out, said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? Just pretty neat passage there. Um, Paul and Silas praying, undoubtedly praying for the people around them because they could have gotten out of this. They knew there was a reason. There was a reason that God didn't want them to pull their Roman citizenship card and it wouldn't it wasn't just so they could get a beating. That that's not why God would do that. God's trying to bring, bring the deliverance of people. So they're praying for these people and sure enough those prayers turn out for the deliverance of that jailer and his family. And that's just yeah, a whole family was transformed by that act and Beyond that, I mean, I, I can only imagine the ripple effect, but yeah, yeah, that's incredible. Absolutely. Now, I also wanted to highlight an example with Jesus. So let's go to Hebrews chapter five. I really like Hebrews five, but we're going to start in verse seven. And it says, in the days of his flesh, Jesus he was living on earth, he offered up both prayers and supplications with loud crying and tears to the one able to save him, to the one who's able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his piety. What is there? Is there a passage in the gospels that that brings you back to? That Jesus was heard? Yeah, that he's offering up prayers and supplication with loud crying and tears to the one who's able to save him. All right. So what happened in the garden? Jesus was praying that basically he could find another way out of this situation, but also submitting himself to God's will. Not just praying once. No. Not just praying for a minute, praying for hours Mm -hmm. where he's literally like sweating sweating blood. And God tells him no, basically. God tells him no. Jesus is saying, can you get me out of this? God tells him no, but Hebrews says that God heard his cry Mm -hmm. and he was saved. 
he was saved. He was heard because of his piety. How was Jesus saved? You know, how was he delivered in a sense? I'm not talking about like a sinner needing salvation, but how was Jesus delivered from death if he died? Well, no one takes Jesus's life from him. He has to lay it down willingly. So I think that his his mind his mindset was in line with what God wanted. And so he didn't see it anymore as this is this thing I'm terrified of, but more of this is God's will and this is what's going to save mankind. You know, this is what's going to bring salvation. And so, I mean, I think a, I think a lot of us are more likely to want to go through with something difficult if we think the reward is big. Yeah. And you know, a lot, but the problem is that you you can't do those hard things. Like we've talked about this a whole bunch of times, but you can't choose that hard thing in that day. Like mm. it's, it's a muscle that has to be built up a lot of times. And it's, it's a daily thing to prepare for those kind of moments, but you don't always get to see those big rewards. But like Jesus, I think he, he understood, you know, he understood what the impact of this really terrible thing he was going to have to go through and that gave him joy, mm. joy for the joy set before him. Yep. Hebrews 12. Yeah. Yep. Yeah, that's awesome. And the gospel writers, um, they hit on this, this point too, that he was saved. And the, the, even though he died, he rose again. And one of the main passages that the disciples and apostles used to prove the resurrection is in Acts chapter 16. And uh, so I want to go there and show that because it's, it's really neat. It's a really neat passage. Acts, Acts chapter 16, the psalmist writes, I have set the Lord continually before me because he is at my right hand. I will not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my glory rejoices. My flesh also will dwell securely. For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol, nor will you allow your Holy One to undergo decay. You will make known to me the path of life. In your presence is fullness of joy. In your right hand, there are pleasures forever. So, yeah, Andrew says, Jesus defined the true nature of complete surrender by his actions when he did that. That's right. Amen to that. And so the writer in Acts 16. I think also he put that he also showed his complete humanity. Yeah, for anybody that thinks he wasn't suffering as we did. I mean, he not only endured that physical side, but the emotional um, and the mental side of preparing for that moment. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And um, he demonstrated extreme faith. Mm you know, for us too, based on the scriptures, that even though he might have to go down to Sheol, he would not be abandoned there. Mm-hmm. Even though he might die, God would not allow him to undergo decay because the paths of life would be made known to him, right? And so that's something that we have to believe too. We have to believe that as well. Um, we have to have that same type of faith. Mm-hmm. And that's what Paul has as well. I think Um, when he's saying he's going to be delivered through their prayers or through the supplication, sorry, uh, through their prayers or the provision of the Holy Spirit, Spirit of Jesus, he's going to be delivered one way or another. I'm going to get out of here or I'm going to meet Jesus. Either way, it's going to be great. Mm -hmm. It's going to be great. So let's keep going with this. All right. This word provision of Jesus, of the spirit of Jesus is a really neat word. Um, I'll put it on the screen. For I know that this will turn out for my deliverance through your prayers and the provision of the spirit of Jesus Christ. As a musician, this is um, this is a really neat word. Epicuregia. Uh, it means lavish resources, making an event a grand production. And it comes from epicuregio, uh, which it, it means to richly supply everything needed for an ancient chorus to become a grand production. That's cool. 
but like Amazing Grace, mm-hmm. you take that simple little melody, vocal melody, and you put these words to it, and then you put like a $100,000 pipe organ uh. and a 100-person choir uh. and strings and a piano and percussion and trumpets. I don't know if you've ever been in a, in a cathedral kind of setting like that where that song is being played or something like How Great Thou Art, or some kind of where it just becomes massive, or maybe it's like Christmas time and you're hearing Joy to the World. Mm-hmm. I remember as a little kid, when we would go to Christmas Eve services, the last song they would play at my church um, as a kid on Christmas Eve would be Joy to the World. They wouldn't go out on the silent night thing. They would have that. But after that, they would do Joy to the World. And it was like so massive. They had this... I don't know if it was a million dollar pipe organ kind of thing, but you've seen it in Westbury. It's it's incredible. Yeah. And the pianist, Steve Adele, is like this just, oh my goodness, genius pianist. And the choir loft full, it's this huge arrangement. Mm -hmm. And just hearing this joy to, I mean, it was like, you know, getting the the skin bumps, you know, like the Holy Spirit bumps. (laughs) Like, it's just like, because... This simple melody that someone came up with in their head one day on the piano or harpsichord or something, you know, just simple thing gets like amply supplied where it's this huge, massive thing that sounds like something out of the book of Revelation before the throne, Mm -hmm. you know, this massive thing. And that's what Paul says is going to be given to him and given to us, basically, that the spirit of Jesus Christ is just lavishly being poured out upon us to take these like meager offerings that we have and just multiply them exponentially. Like a loaves and fishes kind of thing, right? Yes, that's perfect. Thank you. You know, (laughs) I may not have much, but this is all I have. And Jesus is like, perfect. This is great. That's exactly what I wanted. Mm -hmm. That's, That's all that I needed. Yeah, but he really didn't need any of it, right? Yeah, but he needed that step of faith. Yeah, that's yeah. what he's multiplying. It's not that he he's doing this like magic trick and it's like, I need exactly this amount, but it's the heart behind it. And yeah. then he chooses to bless that. So it's pretty cool. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it makes me think back to you being uh, in Speaker's Corner where you're like, I, I don't have it. And God's just like, here you go. You know, I'm going to give you everything yeah. you need for that moment. Yeah. Just like Paul's talking about in Ephesians 6, pray that God would give me the words. Yeah. You know, one of my favorite verses uh, in the Bible is in 2 Peter. 2 Peter, uh, starting in verse chapter 1, verse 2, it says, Grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of the Jesus Christ our Lord, seeing that his divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to to life and godliness through the true knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and excellence. Everything you need for life and godliness. And yet this given given to you is not as strong of a word as Paul uses in Philippians 1. The provision is a stronger word. Just like God's love is deeper and higher and longer and wider. Right. Just like His thoughts are so high above ours, as high as the heavens are above the earth, right? Just like he separated our sins as far as the east is from the west from us. It's like to that type of extent that God is pouring out his spirit on those who are, yeah, Cindy says Jesus mega sizes it. Yeah. Yeah. And I don't... I don't really understand how great of a gift I've been given. Like I can talk about it, but I just don't get it. Right. I just don't get how incredible the gift is of the Holy Spirit that's been poured out on us. Mm. Paul, I think, gets it a lot better than I do. Well, you know? <laughs> sorry, Paul. I think Paul's going to generally do that on those yeah. things. <laughs> yeah, for sure. No offense. <laughs> no, no, none taken at all. None taken at all. Um, so I'm going to jump forward a little bit in my notes. We're going to go on to verse 20. All right. So 
19 and 20, for I know that this will turn out from my deliverance through your prayers and the provision of the spirit of Jesus Christ, according to my earnest expectation and hope that I will not be put to shame in anything, but that with all boldness, Christ will even now as always be exalted in my body, whether in life or in death. So the first phrase I want to start with, earnest expectation is uh, that word is, or those two words, but it's one word in Greek, is only used twice in scripture, if I'm remembering this correctly. And it's here in Philippians 1 and in Romans 8, 18. In Romans 8, it says in 18, I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the anxious longing, the anxious longing of the creation waits eagerly for the revealing of the sons of God. So what is Paul's earnest expectation and hope? that Christ is going to be exalted in his body, whether by life or by death. And the creation is earnestly expecting, anxiously longing for the sons of God to be revealed. Paul talks later in Romans about how those whom God foreknew, he predestined to be conformed to the image of his son you are going to look like Jesus. Amen. Yeah, and not Jesus just God. like in, in, you know, not just like in that shining new, new body, glorified body, but our thoughts, our heart's desires, you know, our words, like we're going to be conformed to that image. And that's incredible. So Paul has this earnest expectation. Now, this word is a really interesting word and it, it, it gives a very neat word picture. All right, so this is, a, I'm gonna put it up on the screen. This is strong 603. And uh, I'm not even gonna try to say that right now, but so it applies directly to each believer receiving a unique glorified body at Christ's return. But the picture of it, is this intense expectation fosters earnest longing to see Jesus portrayed as an Olympic runner straining forward to the end goal with head outstretched. So it automatically also means turning away from what is lesser to lay hold of something that's greater. The picture that came into my mind as, as I as I saw that description of the word picture, this straining is uh, dogs on a walk. <laughs> now, some of you have really good dogs that walk beside you. Uh, and some of us have dogs that can't use a regular uh, collar when they walk because it chokes them. So you, we have to get them those, those body harnesses <laughs> to take pressure off their neck. I think you really like dog analogies. Yeah, lot. I do like dog analogies. <laughs> so I'm about to give another one. All right. So uh, my favorite dog I've ever had. No offense, Zeke. All right. Uh, or Amos. Yeah, earmuff, Zeke. All right. Um, so my favorite dog I've ever had was a dog named uh, Hazard. And um, I got him when I was 20. And he, he was a schnauzer and um, really energetic dog. So every night I would take him for a run um, around the block a few times. So we were doing that one night is a midnight run and uh, we had done a lap and then we were doing another one. And so I was starting to slow down a little bit, come to a walk, take a break, get out my inhaler, you know, do the asthma thing. And uh, so, <laughs> yeah, albuterol. Um, so we're coming to a curve in the block and hazards like he was great. Uh, normally I wouldn't 
Like when he got a little bit older, I wouldn't have to use a leash at all with him to walk him. I wouldn't have to stay beside me for the most part. Um, but he was younger, so I had him on a leash, but he was still really good. And he was standing right beside me. And now it's, it's just so dark outside. And he's standing beside me. And then all of a sudden, his ears perk up, tail goes up, and he just like strains forward. He's just like lunging. He can't see anything. I can't see anything, but he must smell something. So he's got this eager expectation. Something's out there. And um, sure enough, as we pass this, what's, what, it seems like a minivan in my mind, some, some bigger SUV type, type vehicle, um, this chow mix lunges at us. Now, Hazard was maybe 22 pounds or so at that time. And this chow had to be well over 50 so he's about twice Hazard's size. Lunges at, at me and at Hazard, and Hazard just like, he lunged at that chow's throat and like snapped, and it spooked the chow, and the chow kind of backed up and lurched back behind the, um, the minivan. And I was like, dang, I know you tear up furniture and you pee in the house. <laughs> But I love you now. You're my dog. Like you were willing to lay down your life for me. And I remember that, that moment praying that, and this is kind of silly, maybe for some of y'all, but like I... <laughs> I don't know why you looked at me. <laughs> well, I prayed yeah. that my dog, that Jesus would be glorified in my dog's life and death. And... um yeah, that both both his life would glorify Jesus and his death would glorify Jesus. I know that may be really weird to pray that about a dog. I mean, Mark does talk about preaching the gospel to all creation. <laughs> but um, but yeah, so I prayed it for him and um, that dog was awesome. I'm sorry for this really, really long story, but I'm going to tell it anyway, but... Uh, Any chance to tell a hazard story? Yeah, yeah, I got a lot of them. Yeah. But when he was 12, he had two heart attacks on the same day. And we thought for sure he was going to die. And the doctor told us it could be a few hours, a couple days, a couple weeks, or a couple of months. But, I mean, he's, he's 12. He's, gonna, he's not going to last very long. Well, the doctor was wrong. Um, got a praying mother-in-law, a praying mother, praying wife, you know, and I'm praying... And that dog lived two more years. Now, so he's 14. And at 14, I mean, you remember, he's kind of slow moving, mm -hmm. but he's still very playful. Yeah. Very playful dog. Um, and uh, so we, we were in the process of adopting our two kids. And that made me kind of nervous because I didn't want them to move into the house and within, you know, a couple of months or something, have to deal with the death of a dog. Like, I wouldn't want that. I didn't want them to, like, fall in love with the dog and then have the dog die. And so I'm just, like, praying that God would be glorified in his life and death. And so a few days before they were scheduled to move in, he lost control of his bowels. Like, he wasn't able to, to keep anything in. I'm sorry if that's gross. But it was just, like, a really clear sign that... This is his time. Um, is his, you know, organ? He was having organ failure, I guess. Yeah. And uh, I just thought it was. I mean, it was sad, but it was really neat um, that God honored that prayer in a dog. And if He's going to honor that for a dog, you know, um, Jen says we have a thirteen-year-old dachshund. Yeah. If He'll honor that for a dog, how much more for us? And it just kind of brought me back this week is we are looking at that passage um, in Romans 8 about how all creation is has this anxious longing for the revealing of the sons of God, right? Um, creation's going to be restored. And uh, so I don't know if the dogs go to, to be with Jesus right now, but I think God's going to make all things right. Mm. Sorry for the, the dog stuff. Um, 
You're not. You uh, like to throw a good I dog do like story to do in there. It. Sorry, okay. not sorry. But they teach so, us a lot. The way that Hazard was like straining out, Paul is straining as well. He's straining forward for the gospel, and he's straining forward to. He wants to meet Jesus. He's straining forward to to help other people meet Jesus, and he's straining forward to meet Jesus himself. So, let's continue with uh, with verse nineteen. And Stephanie, tap me on the leg if I'm if I'm drawing things out too long. <laughs> she just tapped me. <laughs> so <laughs> we talked before the show about having like a uh, having like a code word or like a you know something like that to get yeah. attention. If if I was doing what I'm doing right now, yeah, telling the life story, getting of off hazard. track. <laughs> No, Sorry. there's more I can tell. I know there always is. Okay. Let's, let's get back to I'll, I'll get Philippians. Back to it. All right, Philippians. Yeah. One nineteen. Paul says, "I know this will turn out for my deliverance through your prayers and the provision of Jesus Christ, the Spirit of Jesus Christ, according to my earnest expectation and hope that I will not be put to shame in anything." Now, this word uh, being put to shame, uh, iskuno, is very similar to epaskunomai, very similar words, to be put to shame or ashamed. And one of the first times you see, or the first time you see that word in the New Testament is in Mark 8. And it's a word that Jesus uses, which I think it plays a significant role in what Paul is getting at, just in my opinion. In Mark 8, Jesus says this. He summoned, he summoned the crowd with his disciples, he said to them, if anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will also be ashamed of him when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. I could be wrong, but I think when Paul is talking about this, he's not doing like a, a legal, worldly, he's not speaking of an illegal, worldly sense of like being humiliated or something like that. I think he's thinking bigger than that. There are bigger stakes uh, than that. And when he's saying he's not going to be put to shame, it's because he is not going to back down if he's standing up for the gospel. Right. In that moment of trial, he's not going to shrink back He's going to strain ahead, to strain forward. But he wants their prayers for that. He needs their prayers for that. He needs Jesus' help for that. And we do too, right? Mm -hmm. So that with boldness, with all boldness, Christ will even now as always be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. That word boldness means free and fearless, confidence, free and fearless confidence, cheerful courage. I'll just read, uh, I'll read a, um, two, two quick passages out of Hebrews that deal with this word boldness, which to me are just really apropos to the situation that we're dealing with. Hebrews 10, the writer of Hebrews, the early Christians thought it was Paul, whether it is or not, I don't know. But the early Christians thought it was. And in Hebrews 10, verse 32, the writer says, Remember the former days when, after being enlightened, you endured a great conflict of sufferings, partly by being made a public spectacle through reproaches and tribulations, and partly by becoming shares with those who were so treated. That's Zeke scratching his collar. For you showed sympathy to the prisoners and accepted joyfully the seizure of your property, knowing that 
you have yourselves a better possession and a lasting one. It just kind of made me think like, what good is it for a man to gain the whole world and lose his soul? You know, that kind of a thing. Like, if you've already lost everything, mm. then you can live with nothing to lose, you know? Right. A lot of the reason, I mean, that comes back to also, like, it's easier for the uh, camel to go through the eye of a needle than the rich man to enter the, the kingdom of God. Mm. It's, there's so much that we'd have to leave behind mm. and be willing to, you know, stop caring about. Yeah. Yeah, and what's interesting is, like, right after Jesus says that stuff to uh, to the uh, disciples. Peter's like, well, we have left everything to follow you. Mm-hmm. You know, and Jesus says, amen. And whoever's left behind, mother, father, sisters, brother, home, all that stuff is going to be given sisters, brothers, father, mother, home, mm-hmm. all that. And in the age to come, you know. Right. Yeah, so pretty neat stuff. But continuing Hebrews 10, Therefore, do not throw away your boldness, your confidence, which has a great reward for you have need of endurance so that when you have done the, when you have done the will of God, you may receive what was promised. You have need of endurance so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. It made me think back to uh, when we were talking about Jesus in the garden, Jesus was going to die at some point. Whether he obeyed God or he disobeyed God, he was going to die at some point. Mm-hmm. But if he obeyed God, his death would lead to a resurrection. Right. If he did the will of God, that death would lead to a resurrection. Yeah, we have need of endurance so that when we have done the will of God, we may receive what was promised. Now, another one, as we're thinking about these tough issues, right? Here's another use of that word boldness or confidence. Same word in, in the book of Hebrews in verse or chapter three, starting in verse 15. He says, we do not have a high priest. Speaking of Jesus, we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weakness, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. Therefore, let us draw near with boldness, confidence, boldness and confidence to the throne of grace so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. We need the prayers of our brothers and sisters in Christ and the provision of the spirit of Jesus Christ and the good news in, he doesn't just kind of like drop it out to us like we're putting you know, drops of oil into, you know, a diffuser or whatever. You know, it's not like that. He's going to supply everything we need, lavishly supplying it. That help, that grace in our time of need. All right. He Now, Paul, getting back to verse 20, he has this earnest expectation and hope that he will not be put to shame in anything, but that with all boldness, Christ will even now as always be exalted in his body, whether by life or by death. That word exalted means to be declared great, to be magnified, to to be celebrated. Hmm. Christ is going to be celebrated, magnified, put on display, um, through Paul's body, whether in life or in death. Right. Do you have anything that's coming to your mind? Yeah, I mean, we, I think a lot of times we think that, um, you know, we need to honor God with our body and that that refers to things like modesty. And uh, that's not untrue. That's definitely true. I don't think there's anything becoming of um, Christian people uh, being in a way that are dressing in a way that's inappropriate. But I think that honoring God with our bodies is an active thing. There are actions that we're doing. We're using the physical bodies that God has given us to be the body of Christ and to meet the needs of the people around us and to live out what God has called us to. I mean, we've been given this body for a reason and it is for a purpose. And um, I think that that's, yeah, that's that's a charge to each one of us. Like that's a to honor God with our body. And 
Um, Paul is talking about whether in his life or his death, Christ is going to be exalted. Um, yeah, it's, I think that that's, that's a hard thought for me to like wrap my mind around that my death is, you know, hopefully going to glorify God. I don't, I don't necessarily want to think that all the time, especially being a parent and, you know, wife and everything. I don't, I don't like the idea of like leaving people behind, but I definitely like the idea of being with Jesus. And I, and I pray that my death isn't something where, you know, it's me being careless. I want it to be something where God is, is truly glorified in that. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Amen. Laying down my life. Yeah. And speaking of life, Paul says in Philippians 121, um, for to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. Mm. All right. For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Like if I'm going to live, Christ is going to be exalted in my body. The members of my body, these weapons, they are going to be used to advance the kingdom of God, to put Jesus on display. And if I die, I'm going to be able to be with Jesus. Mm. That's one way of looking at the, the die as gain. But let's, let's look at to live is Christ. Uh, one of the first, if not the first mentions of this word live in the New Testament is in Matthew 4. This is in the temptation uh, of Jesus after 40 days of fasting in the wilderness. Verse 1 of chapter 4 in Matthew, Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after he had fasted 40 days and 40 nights, he then became hungry. That's an understatement. The understatement of all understatements. Yeah. All right. I miss a meal and I'm like, Philly hungry. Yeah. You might say you're starving even. I mean, you yeah. miss a little bit of hyperbole. Yeah, a little bit. Right. <laughs> so so hungry, Jesus though. is hungry. After is 40 days. 40 days. Yeah. Very hungry. Yeah. And in his weakest point, that's when the devil comes. The tempter came and said to him, if you are the son of God, command that these stones become bread. Right? If, you've, if you are really the king of all the earth, if you are really one with God, if you are the son of God, son of man, you know, if you really are, command that these stones become bread. But Jesus answered and said, it is written, man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. For Jesus to live is God. It's his father. He's just quoting Deuteronomy there. Man does not live by bread alone. Man lives by every word out of God's mouth. I only do what I see the father doing. You know, I don't speak words on my own initiative, all that stuff. Whatever Jesus is doing, he's doing that God would be magnified in his body, whether by life or by death. If he lives, it is for God. And so as Paul lives, it is Christ. To live is Christ. You know, um, as I was thinking about this, it's maybe a little cliche, but I remember back when I was in elementary school, maybe a little bit in early junior high school, they had those, those t-shirts that was like, football is life. You remember those? Yeah. Yeah. I wanted one of those shirts so bad, but my parents wouldn't get one for me. It's probably for the best. It was for the best because like whatever we make life, you know, yeah. gardening is life, you know, whatever it is, when you die... If it's anything other than Christ, when you die, dying is loss. Mm -hmm. Dying is loss of that thing, right. loss of that person, loss of that idea, loss of that hope. Whatever it is, if it's anything other than Christ, to live is that thing, but to die is loss. Mm -hmm. Paul has something that he's living for that dying actually causes him to gain fully. Right. Death is the loss of all things unless 
you live for Christ. And um, that's why Paul could be like, almost like pumped about dying, which is a uh, kind of a weird, th- no? No, you're fine. I thought I was getting the signal. No. I'm like, no, I thought this was all right. No, you're good. Sorry. <laughs> all right. <laughs> Sorry. I'm going to make the signal more clear. <laughs> no, no, it's okay. Um, I was going to do this really long. I'll just kind of show y'all. I was going to read y'all some early Christian stuff. I skipped over one from Ignatius talking about the martyrdom of Ignatius. And I was going to just read for y'all this um, passage from Cyprian, but I won't. I'll just kind of describe it for y'all. This is, um, Cyprian was the Bishop of Carthage around 250. And there's this plague that's sweeping the Roman Empire. And uh, I did a podcast on it, uh, the plague of Cyprian, coronavirus and the plague of Cyprian, if you want to listen to a lot more about it. But um, it it was horrific, just horrific. But one of the things that he describes is that Christians are living in such a different way than the pagans because Christians are not scared of death. They see death as a reward. They're getting to be with Christ. And so they will go embrace the pagans that are being thrown out on the street by their family because they have this disease. The Christians will go like embrace them and try to take care of them and feed them because these people have become ostracized from their families in the most dire time of their life. And it's shocking so many of these pagans that this, this virus that at some points it was reported it was wiping out 5,000 people a day in, in the Roman Empire. You know, so many are coming to life in that time. God's not healing them, but he's using that virus to cause Christianity to spread like a virus, you know, to spread just as rapidly. And by the time of the end of the of the third century, right at the beginning of the fourth century, before Constantine comes on the scene, one-tenth of the Roman Empire had become converted to Christianity, even though it was so dangerous to be a Christian. This, this concept to live as Christ and to die as gain is perhaps the most critical mindset in being uh, a, an effective missionary for Christ. To live is Christ and to die is gain. And uh, it's not just personal gain, right? As we're getting on, it's not just you getting to meet Jesus, but if you're living and dying with that mindset, it's going to be gain for those who are watching. Just like the people in the jail cell are watching Paul and Silas pray and worship, it becomes their gain and the jailer's gain and the jailer's family's gain. To live is Christ and to die is gain. They condemned my friend and haunted me down. I fled to the countryside, kneeling both day and night. But I saw the end and welcomed them in a banquet for enemies, awaken redemption's need like that bedroom fire, the burn me alive. You called me to play. Like that bedroom fire that burned me alive. Eighty-six years I found you never let me down. Still in 
I found you never 